morning, everyone. Um, it's a blessing to see you here as we gather to remember the Passover of our Lord. You know, as we gather, we don't gather just merely out of tradition. We don't do it out of ritual. We don't get any brownie points with God to come together in this way. But we come because a very real event took place about 2,000 years ago. A very real event that happened to a very real person <laughs> in a very real way with very real implications. And so, this is why we're here. We're here to remember, we're here to reflect, we're here to rejoice at the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. You know, there are um, many rumors that are spread around. Maybe you've, you're someone who's been the victim of a rumor. I remember when I was at primary school, I was the victim of a rumor. <laughs> yeah, you'd never believe it. So when I was at primary school, I remember getting called to the headmaster's office and I was standing outside and I wasn't quite sure why I was standing there. And um, at this particular time, there was a quite a lot of hype um, and, and a certain degree of almost hysteria in the school, especially what was known as the fourth years at that time. What's the top class in primary school nowadays? What they, year six. So it would have been equivalent to year six. So I was in year six. And um, there was a, a lot of hype and a, and a lot of hysteria because I, I went to school just off, um, well, it's Kings Avenue, just off Clapham Park Road. And there was a, another school, probably about 10 minute walk around the corner from us. And um, apparently, after school, there was gonna be this big fight between the two schools. Yeah, some of you, you're having flashbacks right now because you, you, you were in school fights, I know that. And so, um, at this time with this kind of great anticipation of this big fight. I was called, it was almost the end of the day, and obviously almost that time when it was gonna be on. And I was called to the headmaster's office. And there are a few people that are standing outside there, and um, we were kinda just lined up. And so when I got inside, like nobody was telling me that it was just the headmaster wants to see us, the headmaster wants to see us. When I got in there, I was told point blank by the headmaster that I was the instigator, that I am the person who was responsible for this big fight that's supposed to be happening. And um, I will be punished accordingly. Now I stood there and I, and I began to, <laughs> what do you do but cry? <laughs> Because it was problems. I knew it was problems. And you know, many you know, I grew up with my gran. Anyhow, anyhow, headmaster ended up talking to my gran. That would have been my greatest concern. My gran's response. My gran used to have a belt that we named Ipitumbe. Uh, I, I'm not even going to take time to explain why we named it that. 
But we were very familiar with this belt, as you can imagine. We had a name for it. And I knew I was going to meet Ibutumbe <laughs> after the conversation with the head, headmaster. So I stood there with tears flowing out of my eyes. And I was absolutely baffled. How is it that I've been accused, I've been put down as the instigator and the, the, the one responsible for this fight that's supposed to be happening? And so, obviously, my name was mentioned, and this is what the headmaster, my name was mentioned several times by other pupils. And I just thought to myself, this is, this is just, it, it just, I can't believe it. And um, the headmaster asked me, he said, so do you have any, you, you, you say you're not the person, do you have any um, um, guesses as to why people would mention your name as being the instigator? And... Um, it didn't come to me immediately, it was after some reflection a little time later. Um, I was just like, you know what? Um, I, was, I did have a big mouth when I was in school. It's not uh, just a, a more recent occurrence. <laughs> I did have a big mouth when I was in school. And I do remember actually running my mouth horribly, hyping people, it's gonna be a fight, it's gonna be a fight. They're coming around in the fight, you're gonna be in the fight. And so everybody's telling everybody else that they've heard it from me. Now, I wasn't the source, but for them I was. Um, I must have overheard a conversation, to be fair. And so, you know, I felt very betrayed and cheated in that moment with the rumors that were being spread about me. Um, but actually, there was actually some source of truth to it. Because for those people, I was the plug. <laughs> I was the instigator. I was the source. And yet we recognize that when rumors are spread about our name, very often it's a lot more hurtful than that because there is no truth in it. It's merely speculation. We've started on Sunday a mini-series, Fake News or Fact. And um, we live in a culture where there's a lot of fake news, a lot of rumors and lies that are spread. And um, none less than about God himself. And um, there's one thing that people often say about the Lord. There's one thing that people often say about God, even in their defense of not believing in God. They say, if there is a God, why is there so much suffering in this world? You ever heard that? Why is there so much suffering in this world? And that often becomes the emotional basis upon which people will reject God and say, you know what, I'm not gonna have anything to do with any kind of God. There can't be any kind of God because look at all the suffering. As a result of that, they become biased against the facts. They become biased against the facts. And so when we endeavor to tell them the facts about Christ Jesus, they become biased against that because regardless of the facts that we present, in their hearts, they're already resolved. I can't accept God and the fact that there is a God because of this issue of suffering that's in the world. And so in view of that, they will cling on to other fake news, other lies, other untruths that are said about Jesus and the facts concerning him. <clears throat> Sunday, we looked at this verse, Matthew 16, 21. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This here is the testimony of Matthew. We heard in the readings that Jesus fulfilled that precisely. And yet people still want to refute that. And so what I want to do is I want to have us look at seven facts and seven considerations concerning the suffering of Christ. You see, what people often do is they say one of a few things. Either Jesus passed out, he never really died. There are those who have said he actually faked his death. Now, these are serious propositions that people have put forward to explain the fact that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. He faked his death or he was resuscitated. He was resuscitated. We're going to consider the passion, unbroken knees, the spear, Joseph of Arimathea, Pilate, the Roman guard, the spices and grave clothes. As to how they refute those three excuses, and I say specifically excuses for not Submitting to Jesus as the Lord that he is. Jesus predicted that he would suffer. In fact, that he would suffer many things. From the point of Jesus' arrest by the Jews, he was beaten. In an illegal trial that broke over 20 Jewish laws. After that, he was passed on to Herod, where he was again beaten. And then he was brought before Pilate. So he's already had two beatings. The, 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 the point from his arrest to his crucifixion is said to have been about um, 24 hours. <clears throat> and he was obviously awake the whole time. By the time Jesus has got to Pilate, Pilate's examined him. And what did Pilate say? I find no guilt in this man. I find nothing wrong with him. And there's a clear sense from the scriptures that Pilate did not want to crucify Jesus. Pilate didn't want to indict Jesus in any way because he found that there was nothing worth indicting. There was no charge to be brought against him, legally or morally. There was nothing wrong with the guy. He was innocent. And so, in verse 1, we heard that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, this isn't just, okay, cool, give him a few lashes, you know, loosen his tongue a bit. Maybe he'll kind of have something to say. Maybe he'll start confessing. 
this flogging was a flogging of unusual proportions. This flogging was normally so severe that criminals would die from the flogging alone. That was commonplace, that criminals would die from the flogging. It has been said that when the, the Romans, when flogging, would, would whip a person um, 39 times. This is debated historically. It's recognized to be true among Jews, but not necessarily so among Romans. The reality is that they would whip a man literally within an inch of his life. And they were specialists because the whips that they used were what they called leather thongs, not the underwear, but leather strands with bone and metal um, embedded in it. So that when they threw the whip, it wasn't just a lash, but it was a lash and a grip and a tear. That was the nature of the flogging that Jesus endured. He shouldn't have lived, and yet he couldn't die. You see, it was prophesied that Jesus must be crucified. And God would only have him fulfill that prophecy. It was a necessity. And so they could have flogged him all day and all night until their hands were sore and their muscles and their arms were aching. He still wouldn't have died. Other mere men would have done. Very soon into the process. And so Jesus was shredded as a result of this flogging. His flesh was torn to ribbons. And after that, we know, if you're familiar with the story, Jesus presents him again to the people. And you imagine the sight. Jesus, his frame torn and shredded, his torso in ribbons, flesh hanging off, arms, legs would have been all been caught. Standing there before the people. Such a gruesome sight. And maybe there was a sense in Pilate's heart, you know what, that's enough. Surely they'll be satisfied with that. And yet he comes out before the people and the people say what? Crucify him. An innocent man. And so they did. They cru crucified him. And we understand that the Romans were specialists in inflicting pain and causing death. And they took the, the invention of the crucifix and they perfected it. And when a person, you know, we think about the nails, clang, 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 through the wrists, not through the palms, but through the wrists, where the bone was strong enough to bear weight. If they put the nails in the, in the palm, it could have torn between the, the, the ligaments and come out between the fingers 
and it wouldn't have been able to bear the weight. It went into the wrist, which in Roman law was considered a part of the hand. And so they drive the nail through the wrist bones, carefully missing the main um, artery there, main vein there, in order that the suffering would not end too quickly. And likewise, taking a, you heard the phrase, nine-inch nails, there was that group. I mean, this is, this is the, the size of nails that we're talking about. Taking that, that nine-inch nail and, and overlapping the feet and putting the nail between the, the um, just at the base of the shin and at the, at the joint of the arm, of the ankle, and putting it through both legs. Again, in such a way that it would bear weight. And then they hoist the victim up. And as the, the, the cross drops into the ground, in that moment they feel the, feel the full weight of their body on those wounds. And yet, it wasn't those wounds that killed them. It wasn't the nail prints, the nail scars, the, the nail holes being bored with the nails. It wasn't that which killed a victim of crucifixion. It wasn't that that killed Jesus. You see, it was designed to be prolonged agony. And so, the victim wouldn't bleed out and die in a matter of hours. It is said that crucifixion victims could have remained on the cross for days. Now, that definitely wouldn't have been the case of somebody who had just been flogged, scourged so violently and gruesomely. And yet, most crucifixion victims didn't receive flogging prior to crucifixion. And so, they would hang there. What would kill them was suffocation, asphyxiation. Because as they hung there, they would try and bear the weight of their body with their legs. And as their legs got tired and the pain got too much, they would droop. And as they drooped, they would find themselves in a position where their lungs were constricted and they were unable to breathe. And so having drooped, they would then push up again in order to breathe. And then as their pain gets too much and they get too tired, they then begin to droop again. And so there would be this rhythm of rising and falling as they were there hanging on the cross until they didn't have the energy, they didn't have the strength to push up anymore. And then they would hang there until they were unable to breathe to the point of death. All the while, the pain increasing from their wounds. The Romans were specialists. They knew exactly what they were doing when they put Christ on the cross. Now, it's because of this that our next fact is significant. You see, the text clearly tells us that this crucifixion took place at the time of the Passover. And so therefore, as it was the preparation day or the day before the Passover, 
Now remember, the, the Passover starts at 6 p.m. in the evening. And so those hours before would have been considered preparation. And it would have been necessary in order for the, for the Lord not to be hanging on the cross on the day of Passover, that he would be removed from the cross. And in order to do that, what they would do is ensure that the, 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 the victims were dead. Now you have to remember that Jesus was committed to death. He was assigned to death by Roman decree. That is as if somebody who um, had committed an act of treason against parliament was given the death penalty. So apparently there are still extreme circumstances in this country under which somebody can be given the death penalty. This wasn't just a casual arrest and punishment. This was by royal decree, as it were. And so before they took these victims off the cross, they were going to make sure they were dead. They were going to make sure that the job was done. And so what they would normally do is they would come along and break their knees. Now what happens when they break their knees, how does that speed up the process of death based on what I've described? They can't push up. They suffocate quicker. They just hang there, gasp, choke, salivate, and die. Eyes roll back in their head. That's it. And so they broke the legs, it says there in verse 30. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Notice that. None of them were going to be left on the cross. And so they came and dealt with all of them. And when they came to the first thief, they, they broke his legs and that was it. He was dead. And to the second. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Now, are we trying to suggest that the Romans don't know how to do their job? Are we, are we trying to suggest that these certified killers would have been mistaken that this man was actually dead? This is, when people give those excuses, he wasn't really dead. This is what they're suggesting. And yet, to be certain, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. And so it is suggested, there are a few different um, reasons why blood and water may have come out as it suggested. But one of the, the reasons is that um, basically um, the heart has a liquid sac around it. And um, when the, the, the um, soldiers pierced Jesus' side with the spear, that it, it pierced his heart and it therefore caused the water to flow out from the wound and the blood um, having come congealed into... I've probably done a very poor job. I'm looking at Dr. Anu's kind of thinking. <laughs> that was so unscientific. And yet, 
it was evidence to the onlooker that Jesus was evidently dead. This was like the signing of the death certificate. If you've lost a loved one, you know that you can't proceed with any burial. No undertaker. It's, you cannot even move the body legally without that death certificate having been issued. And so Jesus was certified dead by the third fact, the use of the spear. Now at this point, we understand that a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, he being part of the Jewish council and yet not being in agreement with their decision, he goes to Pilate. And he does so at fear of his own life. Notice, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Now, why would this very rich, the Bible said that he had a new tomb in Jerusalem. You know how hard it is to get property in London, right? You know, you live next to the station. You want to buy one of these flats up here? I mean, just to rent. It's ridiculous money. Joseph of Arimathea, it's not even just that he had a house in Jerusalem. That would be big things. But this man was so rich, he had a tomb just laying empty, just waiting to be used in Jerusalem. The kind of tomb that Joseph had wasn't just a a rough, shoddy cave. This was a well-hewn, well-prepared tomb. And yet, even at risk of his own life, he boldly goes to Pilate to request Jesus' body. He is another witness that Jesus was actually dead. His actions testify to the fact that Jesus was dead. It seems that there is a sense that even as he went to Pilate to receive the body of Christ, actually, why would the Jews trouble me? Because the one that I have claimed to follow is now dead. He is no longer a threat to them. And so it's not a thing for me to go to Pilate and ask for his body. What can they say to me now? What are they going to do to me now? He's dead. He's no longer a threat. And so in Joseph's mind... Jesus was obviously and evidently dead. And yet again, we see that Pilate gives Joseph the body and would only have done so on the assurance that actually Jesus was dead. Not only that, but we understand from Matthew that Pilate issued a Roman guard to guard the tomb at the request of the Jews. This is taken from Matthew 27. The next day that is, after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said that while he was still alive, um, 
the, that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. So they're recalling now the prediction that Jesus made. Imagine that. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. suggesting that Jesus made fraudulent claims. The fraudulent claims he was being accused of was the fact that he and God are one, that he's one with the Father. And we see that earlier on in chapter 10 of John. And so Pilate gives them a guard of soldiers. Make it as secure as you can. And so they made it secure and they put Pilate's seal on the stone. Which would, that seal could, could only be broken if you were willing to die. It was illegal for Pilate's seal to be broken from that stone, unless it was by the order of Pilate. Anyone who broke that seal, and you, you say, you know, what's the seal? Well, the seal would have been um, a, a kind of a, a wax emblem that would have been put on there um, with a, a kind of an icon or image that represents Pilate's authority. And so that could only be troubled at the pain of death. So this stone, this stone was sealed and the tomb was guarded. In the book that we've been looking at, that I've been recommending, the um, author Val Grieve describes, and I won't go into detail, how a Roman guard unit is com comprised and how you have these 16 men who are responsible for a certain amount of square foot. And if any one of them failed in their duty, all of them would have been killed. All of them. So even if one had fallen asleep, if you know, listen, you're part of the guard unit, yeah? And you know that if you fail in your duty, there's supposed to be some threat to this, this site, this tomb. And someone's on guard duty, and if they fall asleep, you're going to die because of their tardiness, because of their slackness. Do you think you're really going to let somebody just fall asleep? And, or, oh, you know, I'll be back in a minute, you know. <laughs> These were disciplined and diligent soldiers. And so this stone was sealed and it was guarded. Jesus was very dead. And the reality is that if he wasn't before, he would have been having been left in that tomb. He was in there for three days. No one came, nobody went, the tomb, the tomb was sealed and it was guarded. With all of his injuries, with all of his suffering, how long realistically would Jesus have lasted lying there in that tomb, three days without food, 
and water. With, with all of the pain and suffering and exhaustion and everything that he had endured, how long really, if he wasn't there, if he had just passed out, how long would he have lasted in there? No water, three days. Blood loss, I mean, you, you just begin to multiply the factors. Now, we also note this. When they came to the empty tomb, they came and they found the grave clothes lying there. <laughs> Prior to that, we see Nicodemus, Nicodemus who was a, a colleague of Joseph of Arimathea, they came and brought spices. Now, this is just the normal embalming process. I mean, they, 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 they brought, you know, the, 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 the rich version. 75 pounds in weight. That's like almost 40, you, you know, um, two pound bags of sugar. Yeah? Kilo, roughly. That's like 40 of those worth of spices. And as they wrapped the clothing, they would have been putting the spices within the clothing, wrapping and um, concealing and putting in as the process of embalming. And so to suggest that Jesus faked his death to suggest that he faked his death and was able to unwrap himself and alleviate himself of all of these spices that he was embalmed with and do so in such a way that the grave clothes would be just left nice and neatly where they were in position is absolutely ridiculous. If it was a trial being heard in a court of law, there is no way that that testimony would be accepted. So in this we see that Jesus was truly dead. And yet that's what he said would happen. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is Luke's account of the same prediction. Jesus suffered. He suffered many things, even to the point of death. People say, why is there so much suffering in this world? The reality is that we hate suffering. We hate suffering. And we hate the feeling of any kind of discomfort and pain. In fact, there's a reason why we hate suffering. I mean, we hate suffering. It's, it's one thing to say that we hate death. We hate death. You know, I've often heard Pastor Rob quote at a funeral. You know, death is an unwelcomed intrusion in our lives. 
an unwelcomed intrusion. But even suffering in and of itself we hate. Why do we hate suffering? If there is no God, if there's no God, and everything came about by accident, as is the alternative view, that's the alternative claim. If there's really no God, Jesus isn't Lord, he's not risen, there is no God, it's all a fake, it's all a fraud, let's just, you know, we come here together as church, let's forget that this is church, we're a group of people who are considering reality. And we're going to say that there's no God. The alternative is that there was a big bang. Everything came about by chance. It's the only other view that's even tenable. If everything came about by chance and suffering is a part of the experience, why would we hate suffering? We would just say that's just a part of life. Why would we hate death? Why would we mourn? Why would we cry? We would just say, well, the circle of life. That's it. It's just, it's just how it goes. But that don't even make sense to us logically, let alone emotionally. When we experience grief, when we experience pain, when we, when we experience suffering, and we regret it, and we hate it. Ecclesiastes says that eternity has been sown in our hearts. That there is a sense of more in our hearts, in the very fiber of our being. It's been put there by God. And so the fact that we even hate suffering testifies against the notion that actually there is no God. And so, yeah, why, why complain against, <laughs> oh, well, I don't believe there's any God. Why is there all this suffering in the world? Why are you complaining? You're complaining for a reason because you know it's not right. It doesn't feel right in your soul. And yet we have to appreciate that we caused the suffering. We caused it. The first humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. Everything was nice. They walked with God in the cool of the day. The climate was perfect. No tsunamis, no floods. You know that prior to the flood, and scientists, geologists, and, and so on have... have, have um, suggested this from evidence, fossil evidence that's been found. Prior to the flood, the whole globe was of a tropical climate. Let's say like Hawaii or one of them, you know, them, the honeymoon destinations, them places that people always want to go like for honeymoon. With the white sandy beach and like Mauritius or Seychelles or... The whole globe was like that. Imagine that. How much money would save on airfares for holiday? So even nature itself enjoyed the goodness and richness of God. His, his very creation 
was very good from the beginning. And yet through that act of rebellion, sin entered not just into our own hearts and into the human gene pool and into our DNA and into our, our, our moral and spiritual fiber, but it entered into the environment. Why is, okay, so we're terrible people, but why are there tsunamis? Because we're terrible people. Where, where, where do earthquakes come from then? How, because the whole of creation groans, Romans 8 tells us, awaiting the manifestation of the sons of God, awaiting that time when the redeemed will rejoice in our glorification and all things will be made new. And yet even so, God knew that we would cause suffering before the foundation of the world. In fact, Revelation tells us that Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That actually, God purposed that through the suffering that we would be responsible for bringing into the world. He purposed that through it, through that same suffering, his son would enter into this world and suffer and relate to us in our suffering. Even though he doesn't, imagine God saying that I'm going to relate to you in your suffering that you've caused. I'm going to come and suffer in the suffering that you've caused to demonstrate my love for you. God could just stand back and say, it's cool, look, you know what, I've got a plan to fix it. You guys just suffer yourself out, and then at a given point, I'll just make it all good. And then you'll, you'll be able to thank me for that. But God took it to another level. He didn't just leave us to suffer, but he stepped into our suffering and took it upon himself. He experienced it. Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who can sympathize with the feelings of our infirmities. He understands. We have a high priest who understands our weaknesses. He understands the suffering. In fact, the Father himself, as we look at the crucifixion, understands what it means to experience the loss of the loved one. The next time you stand at a graveside, for some of you it might be the first time, remember that God has felt that pain. When Jesus cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? In that mysterious moment when he was counted to have been sinful, bearing upon himself the status of the sins of every person who's ever sinned. And all of the sin in creation was all... The, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ for all such sin. In that instant, Jesus experienced that separation, which is mysterious. Without losing any of his divine quality. There was a legal separation 
between him and the Father. Jesus experienced suffering in a way that is beyond consideration. It's beyond our thinking. And yet God used it. God used it to redeem. This is recorded by John in chapter 11. In response to those who came to worship Jesus. In response to the the death of Lazarus and his resurrection from the grave. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. The most astounding act that anyone could ever witness. And this was their response. Such is the wickedness of the human heart. Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you don't know what you're talking about. That's the paraphrase. That's what he's saying. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You see, they were threatened in the ultimate sense by Jesus. This man has so much power. Did you just see that power that he unleashed? Raising this man from the dead. The people are going to flock after him. They're going to worship him and we're going to lose our power and our control over the people. You see the corruption? It's like, no, we've got to deal with him. We've got to take him out. This is the point at which the contract was placed upon Jesus' head. And yet it goes on to say, verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only. But also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God used Jesus to bring together through his suffering, a people who would bear his name and who would have the hope of eternal life. And so people say, well, you know, why is there suffering in this world? How can there be a God? Do you know who you're actually talking about? Do you understand the suffering that God endured? The suffering that God participated in when he didn't have to? Do you, un- do you actually understand this? In order that even you who would raise that complaint against God are actually able to experience forgiveness and newness of life. But that's not even the end of the story. Because his followers... Those who witnessed his suffering, who testified of his suffering, they also suffered. And this is another thing that causes us to be confident in their story. That actually, they endured suffering even to the point of death. Why would they do that? Because they knew that there was something greater that follows. They knew that 
The tomb was empty. I mean, it wasn't just that Jesus swooned, he, he had fainted, he, he passed out or he faked it. And then on his own, he was going to roll away this two-ton boulder in front of the tomb. Like, no, they understood that something divine, something miraculous happened. That Jesus was raised by God the Father bodily from the grave. The tomb was empty and it weren't no fraud. It weren't no fake or fluke. But it was according to the predicted purpose of God. And in this, we have hope. Beyond the pain. And the pain is, is multiplied in our lives, right? On every level. Physical. Somebody gets hit in a car crash. Comes out paralyzed. <clears throat> Unable to walk again. Pain that's been inflicted. Self-inflicted pain. You have people trying to self-medicate their emotional pain to the point where they, they're killing themselves with the very thing they're trying to medicate themselves with. The drugs and the drink and the promiscuous lifestyle. And yet the pain runs deep. We experience the pain of miscarriage. And yet God understands the pain. He understands our suffering. And there's hope beyond it. And the question is, where else will you find such hope? Oh, well, some would say, you know what, I'll, I'll kind of go for reincarnation myself. Is that really going to give you hope? I mean, it's a gamble. It's like playing the lottery. One, you don't know if it's true. Two, you don't know what you're going to come back as if you, if you really believe that it is. Come back as a cockroach, please. I got some of that spray, <laughs> or, si or a size 12. And, and that's, you know, there is nowhere else genuinely and legitimately that causes us to be able to find hope, to have genuine hope that is of substance, that's solid, upon which we can build our lives. And so we consider the words in closing as I ask the team to come back. John in his letter, he states, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, big word, basically means a satisfactory payment. For our sins, Jesus cried, it is finished. 
in his last words on the cross. The mission was accomplished. The payment made in full. So that whoever believes would not perish, but have eternal life. And this life is only found in Christ. There is nowhere else that hope beyond this world can be found. Hope beyond suffering, beyond pain, beyond even death itself. There's nowhere else that it can be found. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as the suffering servant to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you know the forgiveness of sin? Are you confident in the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection from the grave? It's life-changing. May we rejoice in the work of God that he has achieved for us in making us right with him. And even doing so in such an outrageously gracious way and participating in our suffering. And so when you experience suffering at the hands of another person, remember you inflicted suffering on the Son of God. And just as he's forgiven you, you are to forgive also. Graciously and undeservedly. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for giving your son for us. We thank you for the fact that you are faithful to yourself. You're true to your own name. And in the suffering of Christ, in the suffering, in the passion of our Savior, we receive hope. We receive life. And we're grateful, Heavenly Father. And I pray, Lord, if there are any who have yet to receive life through the suffering servant who gave himself, Lord, I pray that you would impart life to them today and that you'd open the eyes of their understanding and that every excuse, Lord, and every rumor and every lie that would stand in the way would just dissolve in the face of the evident truth that almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified at the hands of the Romans, at the request of the Jews, on our behalf. And having been crucified, he was raised from the dead as a validation that his payment was received satisfactorily by the Father. Thank you, Lord God. May our lives be revolutionized. May our lives be transformed as the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead comes to dwell in us and live in us and empower us beyond our own ability. Thank you, Father. And we say this with the immense privilege of 
it being through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.